Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your mercy and your loving kindness toward us. And this is the grace of God to us that you sent your son in the form of a man who made himself of no reputation and became a servant to all so that we might be saved. Well, Father, I pray that you would give us grace this morning to see his glory, to see your glory, O oh, Father, as, as you magnify the glory of your Son in, in your accomplished mission in sending him to save all who would believe. And so, Father, we pray that you would be delighted in this service and in our worship as we offer it. And may it be with clean hands and pure hearts. Lord, we pray it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. For Christians, the celebration of Christmas really has potential to be a God-exalting holiday. As believers, we understand that the foundation of our faith and hope of eternal life is bound up in the advent of Jesus Christ. We believe that the Bible, everything the Bible teaches, to be sure, but we believe this, that though man's sin has earned him the wrath of God, we can find salvation in the grace of God. And that grace appeared in the world in the form of a baby, but not just any baby, and certainly not every baby, although every baby is a gift from the Lord. No, this particular baby was actually deity in humanity. He was fully man and fully God, come to attain God's righteous standard and to bear God's holy wrath. And this was his mission. And he would complete that mission as a substitute for all who would believe. That's why Jesus came. I want to encourage you this week. Find somebody that you're not too sure is a believer and ask them if they believe in Christmas. Ask them if they understand what Christmas is and take the opportunity to tell them. Unfortunately, the, the true Christian story, the Christmas story as it is revealed in the Word of God, often gets buried under an avalanche of Christmas lights and decorations, wrapping paper, movies, maxed out credit cards, fruitcakes, self-indulgence, and greed. But that should be expected, shouldn't it? We should expect this. We should expect that the enemy of our souls would be determined to distract us, to distract our affections from anything that, that smacks of the true gospel of Jesus Christ so that we would miss the glory of Christ. And so it behooves us then to fight for Christmas worship. You have to. I mean, some of you are going to have to do it in the next several minutes as you're tempted maybe to get on your phone and do some shopping. Forget about it. For several minutes at least, let's focus on the glory of Christ alone. It is incumbent upon the children of God to rein in our thoughts and our frenetic schedules to set aside time to push all of that other stuff out of the way and say again with the hymn writer, Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. Come and free us from our fears and sins and let us find our rest in thee. 
Jesus is glorified in us when we remember and when we delight in his finished work of redemption, which he accomplished, yes, by the cross, but also by his righteous life. It's why he came. As we open our Bibles this morning, more than anything, I trust you have come because you want to worship Christ. And so this morning, and then again next week, I want to focus on the beginning of the Christmas story, the part where we're told about the fact that after centuries of waiting for the coming of the promised Messiah, an angel of the Lord visits an inconsequential village in an insignificant home to tell an unexpected bride-to-be that God has chosen her to bear the Savior of the world. And let's begin by opening our Bibles to Luke chapter 1, and if you would stand with me in honor of God's word, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 45. We'll read the whole text. I'll just give you a heads up. We won't get through the whole text by design this week. We'll save some for next. Beginning with verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, And you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age also has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing shall be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to the town of Judah. And she entered into the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. For thousands of years, the people of God have longed for 
the day when Messiah come. Many of them foretold his coming. Many Old Testament passages talked about the fact that God would send him to be Israel's redeemer. We know that he was sent to be our redeemer as well, even us, the Gentiles. In their own way, the Jewish people and their priests repeatedly prayed that same sentiment that we pray in our day, come, thou long-expected Jesus. We pray for his second coming. They were praying for his first. And I believe, we'll see next week, I believe when Zechariah went into the temple and Gabriel came to him, he was praying the prescribed prayer, namely that Messiah would finally come. They had prayed so long, no doubt some began to doubt that he would ever come. Same as us today. But now it was finally time. The time had come, and you remember Paul said to the church of Galatia, in the fullness of time God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law. When? At just the right time. And I tell you, we are waiting for the Lord to return. And when will he return? At just the right time. In Luke 1, 26 and 27, the story begins to unfold when the messenger arrives. Verses 26 and 27, let me read those again. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And we know from other scriptures that around the throne of God stand holy angels who really only have one purpose, that is to delight and to extol, to magnify, to praise, to worship, however you want to say it, the living God. Now there are only two that we know of by name of these angels. They are Michael the archangel He was the great warrior mentioned briefly in the book of Daniel, and then again in Jude, and then again in Revelation. The other's name is Gabriel. He's God's designated messenger. The only thing we find Gabriel ever doing is delivering a message. He also appears in Daniel, and then twice here in chapter 1 of the Gospel of Luke. Clearly, any message that would be delivered by an angel has got to be important. It's got to be significant. But it becomes all the more significant when you realize that the people had not heard from an angel in 400 years. And now, when we come to this part of chapter 1, this is the second time in six months that the angel Gabriel has come to deliver a message. God was up to something. And the people didn't know what it was, but it was obvious there was something big going on. You remember Gabriel first appeared to, in the temple of Zacharias when he entered to burn incense in the altar there in the temple. He came to announce to Zechariah that his elderly wife, who was barren for their whole marriage, she now was about to have a son. This was the providential timing of God. She would bear a son. 
And the boy would become the greatest prophet who ever lived. He was a man that you know well. His name is John the Baptist. He came first because he was the forerunner, the promised forerunner of Messiah. He came right on time. Now we find Gabriel appearing a second time. And and to whom? A royal princess? Perhaps the wife of a nobleman in Jerusalem? No. Rather, he comes to a young teenage virgin engaged to a humble village carpenter in a little town called Nazareth, a town so insignificant it's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. Two observations should be made here from verse 27. First notice, Luke points out that Joseph was a descendant of David. Actually, both Joseph and Mary were descendants of David. And that's important because the prophecies concerning Messiah indicated that he would be born a descendant of David and he would one day rule on David's throne. Of course, that hasn't happened yet, but one day he will. And even the apostles, when Jesus revealed who he was, they thought that that was going to happen even in their day, that he would set up the kingdom. It was clear that he was Messiah. And yet, Jesus had other plans. Second, notice the description of Mary. She's called a virgin. Let's talk about that for a few minutes. There are many liberal theologians in our day who go out of their way to discredit the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. You think of any theological institution, any conservative Christian college or seminary, at such point as they start questioning the virgin birth, at that point they begin their slide out of relevance to the cause of Christ. And it could be argued that if they're sliding there, they began sliding long before then. But this is certainly a mark. You cannot be a Christian if you deny the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. You cannot be a Christian if you deny the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. The doctrine of the virgin birth is not only clearly set forth in the Bible, it is an essential element to our faith in Jesus Christ. We have to have the virgin birth. It's not optional. It's not just a clever twist in the story. We have to have the virgin birth. One author writes this, no other fact in the Christmas story is more important than the virgin birth. The virgin birth must have happened exactly the way Scripture says. Otherwise, Christmas has no point at all. If Jesus is simply an intelligent, an, an, excuse me, an illegitimate child of Mary's infidelity, or even if he is the child of Joseph's natural marital union with Mary, he is not God. And if he is not God, his claims are lies. And if his claims are lies, then his salvation is a hoax. And if his salvation is a hoax, we are all doomed. What are we doing here? The virgin birth of Jesus Christ is an underlying assumption in in everything the Bible says about Jesus. To jettison the virgin birth is to throw out Jesus' deity. It's also to throw out the the accuracy and authority of Scripture and a veritable host of other foundational doctrines found in the Word of God the very foundations of 
our faith. Everything else the Bible teaches about Jesus hinges on what we celebrate at Christmas. And it's this, that Jesus actually is God in human flesh. That truth is just as significant and valid for us today as the the resurrection ever was. It is not optional. If you were a child of God, you may not reject the the, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And I would just say, if you read statistics from Barna or whoever else, and they say that 46% of of, uh, born-again Christians reject the virgin birth, I would say 46% of professing Christians are non-Christians. Now, I'm not saying you have to hear the virgin birth. I'm not saying you have to understand all the ramifications of the birth. But if you hear it and understand it and reject it, you're not a child of God. You couldn't be. It would be a logical fallacy to say that Jesus could save you if he is not God. And if he wasn't born of a virgin, then he is not God. Luke clearly establishes, however, that Mary was a virgin. There's no question about it from the text. The Greek word in Luke for virgin, verse 27, is parthenos, which means one who has not had intimate physical relationships with a man. The term was never used of a married woman. Girls of that day were, it seems strange to us, but in that day, girls were betrothed to her future husband at age 12 or 13 or 14 in a public ceremony to the man that her parents chose. What do you think about that, you young ladies? (laughs) The couple would spend a year getting to know each other while living separately in homes of their respective parents. They would spend time together. At the end of the year, then, there would be a public ceremony again, and they would be married. And then they would leave their father and mother, and they would cling to one another, presumably as long as they both should live. And Luke makes it clear that Mary and Joseph had entered into this engagement period, or betrothal as it was called, but they had not yet consummated the marriage. Verse 34 tells us that after that angel told Mary that she would have a son, she responded with these words, how can this be since I am a virgin? And then again in Matthew 1 verse 18, we read these words, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. There's no ambiguity in the text on this issue. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. The church has always, always, always believed that because the scriptures very clearly teach it. And friends, this is amazing This is amazing. I I think sometimes we're reluctant because we're Protestants to talk about Mary too much. Um, This is an amazing part of the story. In fact, this is an essential part of the story. We should glory in this, not because we're elevating Mary, but because we're appropriately elevating Jesus. 
The hope that we stand upon today is not some shallow, feel-good invention of modern religiosity or psychology. It is the bedrock truth that God himself came to earth in human flesh to do for us what we can never do ourselves. Our hope is not in Mary. Our hope is not in Joseph. Our hope is not in the wise men or even an angel from heaven. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, the very Son of God. Let that sink in, beloved. Son of God. There's no one on the planet, no one else on the planet ever has legitimately been able to claim that. There is only one, and he was born of a virgin. And so Gabriel, the messenger of God, arrives to deliver the wonderful news of God's plan to this poor, humble bride-to-be in the provincial village called Nazareth. And so Gabriel says, verse 28, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. A favored one here means one who receives special blessing, kindness, or grace from God. The covenant-keeping Lord of Israel was paying this young lady some special attention. She didn't ask for it. She never dreamed she would get it. No one knew. She was about to be blessed more than any other woman in history had ever been blessed by God. And how had God favored her? He'd come to her in a very special way, Gabriel says. The Lord, Yahweh, is with you. You say, well, isn't he with everybody? With all of his people? Yes. In a sense, he's omnipresent, so he's with everyone, believer and unbeliever. In another sense, he is with the child of God in a very unique way. He's Christ in us. And in an even more unique sense, he's with Mary. The Lord is with you. He doesn't say the Lord is with the nation, Israel, or with her tribe, Judah, or with her family, but specifically and uniquely with her. But she has absolutely no idea what's about, hap about to happen. She doesn't have a clue what comes next. She's, she's just shocked that there's an angel standing in her kitchen. We know that. We know that she's shocked by this because... Um, the next verse, verse 29, we read, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. <laughs> That's an understatement. <laughs> I wonder what sort of greeting that is. Have you ever said that to anyone standing at your door when they knock on the door and say, hello, and you say, I wonder what sort of greeting this is gonna be. No, this is, this is just Luke's way of saying, she has no idea. <laughs> this is shocking, this is unusual. How do you talk to an angel? Why is he talking to me? And we see in this Mary's humility. Throughout this passage, it's apparent that Mary, Mary's life is marked with humility. She clearly understands the Old Testament scriptures. And the more we study what little has been revealed about Mary, the more convinced we become that she is one of those faithful Jewish women whom God has justified by grace through faith. She is a covenant keeper. And no one's a perfect covenant keeper. 
But they are justified, even in the Old Testament, by grace, through faith. She was a faithful teenager. I I want that to sink in a little bit for you young, unmarried girls, you young ladies. You realize that Mary is a wonderful role model for you, a teenager and godly, pursues godliness and holiness. She loved the Lord, and she sought to live in covenant faithfulness to him. But she knew, contrary to what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, she knew that she was a sinner. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, I know that because of verse 47. Just jump down to verse 47. In her Magnificat, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God. What's the next two words? My Savior. My Savior. Mary was waiting on the salvation of the Lord, just like everyone else. She didn't see herself as anything special. She didn't see herself as unique. She wasn't waiting to be discovered. And Gabriel's greeting and his very presence left her perplexed and speechless and, and filled with a significant amount of fear. We know that because at this point in the story, she has no idea what's happening, and the very first thing that, that um, besides the greeting, that Gabriel will say to her is, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And that brings us to the, the message that is going to be delivered, verses 28 through 35. Here we find that Mary finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. Look at verse 30. Verse 30 says, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now there's that term again. We've already talked about favor. It means blessing or grace. Only this time it's even clearer. The Greek word that's used here is charis, which means grace. It's a word that means gift. It's a word that means special favor. God has singled Mary out to receive a very unique gift, which at times in days ahead for her would not feel like a gift at all, but would in the end prove to make her realize that she is blessed beyond all women. It wasn't that Mary was intrinsically more worthy than other women in Israel, that she would receive this gift, but that God had sovereignly chose her for reasons never revealed to us. He chose her to fulfill a holy and difficult calling. And we should note, however, that God is a God of grace, and on some occasions, In redemptive history, he has bestowed grace like this on other people, a unique gift, a unique calling. For example, we see this in the life of Noah and his family, whom God called to prepare a way of salvation from the flood. The parallels are really interesting when you get thinking about Noah preparing a means of salvation and Mary preparing, as it were, in her body, the means of God's salvation. And what was so special about Noah? Well, Genesis 6 says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. There's nothing new here. 
I mean, God has, has always poured out his grace upon those whom he chooses according to his sovereign will. <clears throat> Noah found grace because of God's sovereign choice. Mary found grace because of God's sovereign choice. And if you are a child of God by, by faith, by grace through faith, then you are a child of God by choice. He's chosen you. He's chosen you. You are his own. He has adopted you into his family. You are forever his, not because of your initiative, but because of his initiative. It's because of his great love with which he loved us that he came to earth to live the perfect life we could never live and to die for sins that we owned. It's never on the basis of works done in the body, but on God who exercises his sovereign right to choose. You know, most people, when you think about Israel as God's chosen people, no one balks at that. I mean, among Christians, we don't balk at the idea that God chose Israel. Then why should we balk at, at the fact that God chooses anything? God chose you before the foundation of the world. And in this sense, on this occasion, and for this purpose, God chose Mary. Why? So that no one can boast, and so that Christ will receive all the glory, as with her, so with us. God will be glorified, which is another reason why it had to be a virgin birth. Joseph would get no credit for bringing the Son of God into the world. As wonderful a, a man as he probably was, another God-fearing, godly Jew, and yet he would get no glory, no credit for bringing the Son of God in the world. Mary had been singled out by God as the one upon whom he would pour his special favor, his grace, and so she had no need to fear. Fear not, Mary, fear not. And now Gabriel gets to the main point of the message, which is, namely, the glory of Christ. Verses 31 through 33. Follow along with me now. And behold, this is Gabriel speaking, and behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will, will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Well, if you think about Gabriel's greeting, you think it, it jolted Mary just in the greeting? I mean, how much more speechless can you imagine she would be now to hear these shocking words being delivered to her? She was an educated young lady. She, she knew what this meant. Mary, who was not yet married, is, is now told that she's going to have a baby, a son, and that, that she was to name the boy Jesus. Why Jesus? Why Jesus? Why, why not John? Well, he's already named someone John. Why not Joseph after his father? Why Jesus? Well, you probably already know the answer. God wanted to name him Jesus because this was a special name. It had a special meaning. It means Yahweh saves. 
It means Yahweh is Savior. Now, do, do, you get, do you get you get the connection here? The import of this. Think about it. Jesus's very name is a prophecy for why he came. He is here. What is your name? My name is Jesus. Why have you come? My name is Jesus. It's obvious why I've come. Yeshua, from which we get the name Joshua. I mean, it's, it's the same lettering. It's the same word. Jehovah saves. All of Israel has been waiting for Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, who would sit on David's throne and rule forever. Mary would never have dared to think that God might accomplish this through her. And yet here's Gabriel. Here was Gabriel himself standing in Mary's kitchen, declaring that God had singled her out to be the one through whom the Christ, the promised Messiah, would be born. This would not only this would not only stun her, it would stun everyone around her. And so many wouldn't even believe. This would be no ordinary baby. He would be great. He would be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. Mary's baby would be the, the sinner's savior and king. Does that sound a little like the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or his peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord would accomplish this. And we can say today, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Do you believe that? You say, now you're in eschatology. Um, no, now I'm in the Bible. Now I'm just telling you what the Bible says. One day he will rule on the throne of David. And of the increase of his government, there will be no end. But now Mary is, Mary is very perplexed and finally finds word to ask a question. Verse 34, how can this be since I am a virgin? Gabriel immediately explains and he tells us in his explanation who Jesus' true father is. Verse 35. In verse 35 we read, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Son of God. This was the fulfillment of another of Isaiah's prophecies. Isaiah 7, 14, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name 
Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. I mean, when the Shekinah glory came to the tabernacle, it was God with us. But now it's going to be God with us in a very unique way. He's not going to be a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. He is going to be a man. A man, so much a man that, that he, would, he would only be seen as a man by those around him. Until he started doing his miracles, still, until he started teaching and explaining the scriptures as he did, until he rose the dead and calmed the sea, he would not be called the son of Joseph. He would be called the son of Yahweh, the son of God. Call him Jesus, Gabriel said, because his name means Savior. Call him great, because history has never seen a man whose influence would change the world and manifest the glory of God as he would. Call him Son of the Most High, for he is both human and divine, a real man and very God of very God. Call him King, because he will sit on David's throne as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Before him... Every knee will bow, and say it with me, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What else can we say? But come, come thou long-expected Jesus. Maranatha, right? Even so, come, Lord Jesus. What else can we say? He is the only sure hope and unshakable confidence upon which modern man can stand in such turbulent days as these. Oh, beloved, don't lose your wits. When the pressure increases, and I'm no prophet, but I suspect it will. Worry not about governors and kings and presidents. Stand firmly upon the lordship of Jesus Christ. Follow him. Obey him. Develop a theology of getting fired if you need to. Be faithful to him. Serve him. Proclaim his excellencies. Declare his gospel. And see what God will do. Beloved, what the world needs today is not a new paradigm for societal evolution. The new morality is, is not going to save us or anyone else. The push for absolute equality is not going to rescue us. What the world needs today is what the world has always needed. It's never changed in the history of humanity. We need a redeemer. We need someone to rescue us. We need a savior, not someone who will necessarily take us away from the hardships of this life, but someone who will transcend the hardships of life and give us the capacity to live for his glory in the midst of the hardships of life. Imagine Mary. Talk about hardships of life. Did she for a moment think that the calling with which that, uh, that she was receiving was going to be an easy road? We need the one who is fully God and fully man, who lived the perfect life that we could never live and died the death that we deserved. 
And you know what? It's not just you and I who need it. It's everyone you know and every baby born into the world and every hostile coworker or neighbor or person you meet on the street. We need to be reconciled to God by grace. That's our greatest need. By grace, through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I mean, we could go on and on for days about the theology that's behind this and the practicality that comes out of it. But let's flash back to Mary for a minute. How did she respond? How did Mary respond to all of this? She responds in humble faith. Look at verse 38. We're going to skip some verses here. We're going to come back to them next week, but I want you to see. Verse 38, Mary said, behold, she's talking to the angel. She says, look, angel, whatever your name may be, here's what you should know. I am the servant of the Lord. I don't live for me. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What's she saying? She's saying what every believer in his heart says to God in faith. Lord, here I am. Take me. Use me. However you want to use my life, take me. You're Lord. I'm, I'm just a slave. I'm just a servant. I've never been anything. I don't want to be anything. But if you'll use me, then use me. She didn't demand assurances that everything would work out okay. She didn't demand that, that she would be kept safe from her family and from the neighbors when she comes home pregnant. She understood that the penalty for adultery was stoning. She knew that. Would anyone really believe that she had become pregnant by the Holy Spirit? I mean, what are the chances of that? Nevertheless, nevertheless, before I give you the rest of the nevertheless, how do you respond when you know God wants you to do something or stand for something or say something? What's your response? Lord, I'm your servant. There's no question here as to how I'm going to respond. Lord, I'm your slave. I live to serve you. I need no assurances that it's going to work out. I'm, I will need no assurances that this person that I talk to is going to receive the message I bring. This was a hard message for Mary. It had to be both exhilarating and terrifying. Nevertheless, she responded in faith, trusting that the God who called her would be faithful to preserve her until the end. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They didn't demand safety either. Lord, King Nebuchadnezzar, guess you'll have to throw us in the fire. We're not going to bow down to you. Our God will save us. And even if he doesn't, we will not bow down. This is the heart of Mary. Lord, even if this goes badly for me, I believe it will, go it will go according to your plan. I trust you. What about you? You may be here this morning 
And maybe you're here just because it's Christmas time. A lot of people do that. A lot of people come for Christmas. And if you're here for Christmas, then welcome. We're glad you're here. And some of you, no doubt, as you heard the testimonies in the water this morning down the hall in Fellowship Hall, you heard the testimonies of some who grew up here and had to wrestle with whether or not they were going to believe this. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's you. You have something lying before you, a question, a big one. Will you trust him? Will you believe in him? Will you hang all of your hope on him? Will you submit to him? Will you let him rule your life for his glory and for your joy? Will you come to him? Will you lay down all of your righteousness? And will you say, Father, I have nothing to offer you but my sin. Will you accept me on the merits of Jesus Christ, on the bloody death of Jesus Christ? Will you accept me because of him? And Jesus says, whoever comes to me will not be cast away. And so I plead with you, come to him. Don't be like the Israelites who, when they ran out of water, complained to God and forgot the promise. God is making you a promise. Don't turn your back on his word. Don't turn his back, your back on his invitation. Receive him today. Well, tomorrow, we'll come, no, I mean, next week, we'll come back. We can come back tomorrow if you want. And we'll come back and look at the rest of the story. In fact, I want to do kind of a prequel and go back to Zechariah, talk about him a little bit, and set up John the Baptist's birth before we get into Mary leaving home and going to visit Elizabeth, John the Baptist's father. And even in that, we will see the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you, Father, for loving us loving us enough that you would send your son to die in our place. But even long before that, I think the greater thing, at least in terms of thinking about eternity, is that you would choose to become a man for any reason. That you would save us by becoming a man. It's astounding for us. And we cannot fully comprehend it. And so we simply fall before you and we worship and declare that you are worthy. Above all else, you are worthy. We praise you. Help us, Father, not to miss the glory of these things in the midst of the, the tinsel and the wrapping paper and and the songs that we hear on the radio. May we discipline ourselves to see the glory of Christ in his word, to meditate on him, to proclaim his excellencies to one another and to those we we're confident don't know him. And oh, Father, be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.